Did this grow again? There we go. Uh, that's right, sorry, it's me. Yeah. Well, it's obviously uh, time to prepare for Christmas. Um, and obviously there's a lot to do. You've got to get your Christmas tree up, get it decorated, get those lights on the house, start blowing up your Santa to stick on the roof. Um, then there's Christmas Day. You've got to figure out who we're having dinner with, when, uh, what's on the menu. And then let's not forget the most important thing about Christmas, shopping for presents. And where does Jesus fit into all of this? Well, it's getting hard to see, isn't it? Well, as every year goes by, um, the story of Christ coming into the world is just getting pushed further and further into the background behind all that festive bling. And if it's not forgotten altogether... Uh, Christmas, the Christmas story has become not much more than just a bit of a pretty decoration to add on to the end of Christmas. Well, the next four Sundays mark the season of Advent. So this is our opportunity to slow down, to look, uh, to wonder again at the coming of Jesus into the world um, and to make ourselves ready and really to make ourselves ready uh, afresh to receive the good news that is announced by Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. So for the next four weeks, we're going to immerse ourselves in four words that are normally associated with Advent and Christmas, hope, peace, joy and love. Now, properly understood, these are four words that really serve as doorways into the immensity of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom. Um, They're words that ought to help us navigate the very wide open country um, that we find ourselves in when we start to consider the words and the actions of Jesus. Um, When we start to think about his death and resurrection, when we think about his coming, his ascending and his expected return. But unfortunately, like everything else about Christmas, hope, peace, Love, joy have been generally secularised, they've been commercialised and they've really been trivialised. They've become shiny ornaments that we hang up in shop windows. Uh, They get printed on Christmas cards as a sort of a a nice sentimental idea. Um, they're, They're really reduced to fairly trivial emotions that like everything else at Christmas, we buy, we consume and at the end of Christmas Day we kind of scrape it off into the bin, right? Well, over the next four weeks, we want to rescue these four words from all the sentimentality and triviality, and we want to taste them again. We want to savour them on our tongues. And what we really want to see is that Christ is the content of hope and peace and joy and love, and in fact, that without him, those four words don't mean much. Not at Christmas time, and really not at any time. So let's pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts afresh. Um, Christmas gets a bit worked over, a bit tired and worn out, and we would ask that you would fill it up again with the content of your Son, the content of the good news, the content of all that you are doing um, in the world, and that, Lord, you would indeed teach us how to be people of hope and how to minister and share hope with others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our first word is hope. And before we get to talking about what hope is, we better get to talk about what hope is not. 
Because very often these days, hope means what I'm wishing for, what I'd like to have. So, for instance, the Cambridge Dictionary uh, defines hope as to want something to happen or to be true. Now, when I was at boarding school, a, a thought would begin to take shape during most days, and the thought was, I hope there's something nice for dinner. And what I meant by that, of course, was that very often there wasn't something nice for dinner. Uh, the low culinary point of every week was a dish that consisted of basically boiled cabbage. And so I couldn't ever be certain on any particular day that there would be a nice dinner as much as I was hoping there might be one. So in popular speech, hope means wishing something to happen without any real certainty of it. And so I hope comes to mean the same as, well, I want, I wish, I desire, but I don't really know. I'm not certain. And as an emotion, hope then becomes a way to comfort ourselves in the face of uncertainty. And so it's a way of giving expression to how we feel about the future. So if we say, uh, I hope I make it to the airport on time, what we're really saying is we're expressing our anxiety about what might happen if I miss that plane and all my expensive travel plans bite the dust. I hope my MRI is normal is a way of expressing my fear about getting cancer and dying. Now, the Bible does use the word hope in this sense. So, for example, when Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, he says to them, uh, when I go to Spain, I hope to see you as I pass through. And he means, I desire to see you, but it's not certain that I will. But throughout the Bible, hope acquires a much stronger meaning. It actually comes to mean a confidence for the future, a certainty about what will happen. And, and so Christian hope moves us well beyond wishing for something or desiring something or longing for something to a very settled expectation about what God is doing in the world. And hope at Christmas time then is anchored very firmly in what it is that God is doing through the coming of Jesus into the world. Well, the text we took from First um, Peter is probably one of our best texts for thinking about the nature of Christian hope. Uh, Peter writes to his congregations, By God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, in this short kind of explanation of hope, Peter presents hope as having a future, a past, and a present dimension. And so we're going to work through and examine hope in each of these three dimensions. Let's begin with the future. Um, hope, as a Christian virtue, is a bit of a funny creature to describe, really. Because when we talk about having peace or love or joy, um, we, we, we mean to say that we can actually experience those or actually do them in the present moment. They're things we have now. But you really don't have hope 
in quite the same way because hope isn't really the thing itself. Hope is the expectation of something else off in the future. And as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, who hopes for what they already have. So one of the ways this idea takes shape in the Scriptures is in the action of hope as waiting expectantly, waiting patiently for something to arrive. And so Peter links a hope of a promise for the future to an inheritance that is waiting for us. Now the thing about an inheritance is that you know it's already there, right? It, it exists before you come into possession for it. In fact, you may not even know it's there, and it'll pop up one day and surprise you. Um, and so hope, our hope rests in an inheritance that Paul says is already there. It is kept in heaven for you. And he calls it an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Because this is a thing that is not going anywhere, right? It won't rust away if you leave it under the sprinklers. Uh, it won't be gobbled up by interest or taxation or, or the failure of the stock market. Um, its paintwork won't perish if you park it at the beach too often. Its operating system will never, ever need, need updating for it to keep working. Um, no one can steal it. An earthquake won't knock it over. It won't get sick and die. So what is this inheritance that we have waiting for us, kept in heaven? Well, Peter calls it a salvation that is ready to be revealed when Christ appears again. And in fact, he mentions it twice in this passage. Now, that's a big concept, salvation. Salvation contains a number of things, but we can more or less summarize them all in the word glory. Now, you might remember in this passage, Peter is talking to Christians who are suffering. They know what hard stuff is about. Their current experience is a tough one. But he tells them their suffering is proving and testing the quality of their faith. And what will result from that, he says, is them receiving praise and glory and honour. Think about this a little bit, uh, might you, as you might think about an Olympic athlete, right? Hours, weeks, years of pretty painful training, all endured for the dream of maybe one day standing on that top dais and receiving a gold medal. And all the accolades that come to a gold medal winner. All that praise and glory and honour. Well, glory is what Christians are bound for. Jesus even tells us uh, that, that his mission is to bring his followers into his glory. So on the night that he was betrayed, in John 17, we, we read of a, a long prayer that he prays, and one of the things he tells the Father is, I have given them the glory you gave me. The Apostle Paul has a phrase for this, in a couple of places, he calls this the hope of glory, the expectation of glory. The best place to read about glory that I know of is in a fantastic essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Weight of Glory. 
And he explains that the glory of the Christian is found in receiving the divine accolade. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he goes on to say, glory means a good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. The gold medal of the Christian life is the, the inheritance that Paul tells us is kept in heaven for us that we are expecting is nothing less than God's own smiling face turned upon us. God's arms outstretched in welcome. We will get honour and reputation and praise from God himself. You know, we spend our lives working to gain validation in the eyes of the world, to get recognition that says we're actually worth something. And that means we're all of us looking for glory, whether through uh, a visible wealth, the importance of our career, our title or position, uh, through what we achieve or make, through our rewards, our relationships, our sexuality. You know the list. You have a list. And you know what's on your list. We are always hunting for things that will reassure us that we matter, that our life is not meaningless, that it's not trivial, that it's not mere vapour, mere breath. So glory in one shape or another is what the human heart most longs for, an accolade from someone affirming our significance in some way. And if you go hunting in uh, popular songs, our, our poetry, popular stories, um, that often stands right at the bottom of the stories we're telling, that someone will affirm me in some way. And Christian hope says that human longing, that I wish, I want, I desire, will be fully met when we receive the only validation that actually matters. Well done good and faithful servant. So as Christians, we know our death is not the end of all of that stuff. It's the beginning of the thing that's going to matter most. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, the welcome into the heart of all things. So Christmas is a time of hope because it anchors all these future expectations of glory in the past of Jesus' birth. Now, perhaps one of the reasons that the birth of Jesus is being pushed further and further out to the periphery of Christmas is because you can't have the birth of Jesus without dealing with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, everybody likes the cosy nativity scene. You know, cute, chubby, newborn baby, contentedly asleep in that little box of hay, a glowing cow shed on Christmas Eve, a few nicely washed shepherds hanging around... But the scene of Jesus' birth is intended to prepare us for the scene of his death. Those two go together. And that's a very confronting scene. Jesus in pain, naked, bruised, bleeding on a cross that is meant to be the ultimate humiliation for nobodies. It's a scene that confronts us with the really 
serious stuff of life. There's nothing trivial or blingy about it. And there's one particular moment in the death scene of Jesus that brings the hope of Christmas into really sharp focus. As Jesus is crucified, the leaders in the crowd start to scoff. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mock. Oh, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even the sign above Jesus' head is meant as a mockery. This is the king of the Jews. There are two other condemned criminals hanging either side of Jesus, and one of them begins to insult him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, do you hear what they're all saying? Messiah, king of the Jews, save. The historical hopes of the Jewish people rested on God's promise to his people of a Messiah, a king. He had promised that through an everlasting kingdom that he promised to David, not only would he fulfill all the promises to Israel to make them into a great and a blessed people, he would bless the entire world as well and set all things at right. And so for Jesus' enemies, the very fact of Jesus' crucifixion, his execution on the cross, is proof positive that he cannot be Israel's Messiah. And at that very moment, all the hopes the disciples had been nurturing are completely dashed. And we hear two of them saying on the road to Emmaus a day later, we had hoped, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But there is one man in this crucifixion scene who actually apprehends what's going on here, the second criminal. He rebukes the first criminal for his insults and says, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here is the only person at the crucifixion scene who thinks Jesus is actually the promised king. And he recognises Jesus dying on the cross. That's not the end of everyone's hope. It's actually the very inauguration of the kingdom that everyone is expecting. And Jesus answers him quite simply, Truly I tell you, you today you will be with me in paradise. Now just feel the weight of those words for a minute. Here's a guy who's not just a sinner like you and me. He's a convicted criminal. He's actually some kind of murderer or insurrectionist or serious robber or criminal. Here's a guy like that receiving something he doesn't deserve for. Something he hasn't worked for. There's nothing about his life that merits it. And when he got out of bed that morning, whatever his bed was... He probably wasn't expecting that his execution day would finish this way. He receives a welcome into the kingdom of God. He gets what C.S. Lewis was thinking of. Acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, welcome into the heart of things. He is given 
glory. And I tell you, what this thief on the cross gets, I want. Here's the Christian hope of glory that Paul's talking about. Here's the inheritance Peter tells us about. Moral goodness, no achievement of our own. Jesus' inheritance becomes our inheritance. His glory and acceptance by the Father becomes our glory and acceptance with the Father. Now the Apostle Peter adds something important here when he says to us, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. This is very unambiguous grammar. It's not he will give us a new birth, but he has given us a new birth. The past historical event of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection is the basis for a present certainty about the future. And here is where, oh, I hope so, changes into, I'm confident that. Because we don't have a wish for life after death. We have a certainty of life after death, an historical certainty of life after death. And so that brings us finally to think about the present. Peter talks about hope here with an interesting phrase. He calls it a living hope. Now, what is a living hope? Well, it's not actually hope for a life to come. Uh, living hope means a hope that is active in the present. It, it, it's alive and it's working in us right now. So hope has a present dimension that informs how we're going to live in the present. How are we going to respond to all of this in the present? Now we just finished listening to the book of Ecclesiastes. Its author assessed everything under the sun, everything judged from the mere standpoint of, of, of uh, human senses as being finally meaningless, just mere vapour. It's all here for a moment and then it's gone in an instant. Well, hope is what enables us to live well in the present. Hope is the thing that helps us view ourselves and view the world in its correct perspective. So how does hope do that? Well, just as in Jesus, our past becomes bound up with him, so in our baptism, his death becomes our death to sin, um, so also our future is bound up with Jesus. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. So hope teaches us that our present is also bound up with Jesus. His life is our life. And the way to engage hope in the present is to learn how to trust him. Or even to put it another way, to entrust ourselves into his care. And throughout the Old Testament, hope is very often synonymous with trust. The two words are used almost interchangeably. So, for example, in Psalm 71, the psalmist says, You have been my hope, sovereign Lord, the object of my trust. And here's the thing about Christian hope. Our hope is hope in God. It's hope in a person. Its object is a person, not a thing. It's not even finally 
hope that I will be resurrected on the last day. It's my hope in Jesus himself. And so it's really not saying too much to say that the only real hope the world can have at Christmas is hope in God, a trust in Jesus. Because he's not only our creator, he's our saviour. And what the world needs doing today, in the very things going on around us at this moment, what the world most needs doing to set it right, only he can do. And we'll get on to more of that next week. But for each of us at Christmas, hope as a present living hope is a hope fixed on the person of Jesus. We need to hear what the criminal on the cross heard. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, when we hear that phrase, uh, certainly when I hear that phrase, uh, the thing we usually get fixated on is, what does this word paradise mean? What, what's in paradise? But Actually, when we do that, we miss the most important part of the statement, you will be with me. And again, our text in Peter helps us with this today. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what the presence, the person of Jesus does for us. So here's how living hope enables us to deal well with our pasts. It means that we are no longer defined by either the past injuries or, let's put it correctly, the past sin done to us. We are no longer defined by the past injury, the past sin that we have done to others. We're not getting what our sins deserve. We're getting Jesus' glory instead. We get what he deserves. Here's how living hope enables us to live well in the midst of suffering. Because we know that death is not the end, but rather, you will be with me. Here's how living hope enables us to live well in the midst of temptation. Lord, remember me. And the Psalms are an excellent resource then for learning how to pray this hope in God into all the situations of our lives. It's what the psalmist do so well. So the next four weeks of Advent, here's our opportunity to prepare ourselves well for Christmas this year, to see past the bling and take a look again at the baby in the manger. God come to be with us precisely so we can be with him. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this Christmas, within our own lives, within the lives of, of people around us, our family, our friends, uh, the people that we're often in conflict with. Lord, in a world that is absolutely um, 
torn apart and, and is increasingly filled with hopelessness where there are so many people who have nothing to look forward to, for whom um, life is becoming an, a, a yawning, empty black hole. Lord, we pray um, the only hope that really matters. Lord Jesus, we pray your word going out into the world this Christmas in big and small ways. We praise you for the coming of Jesus. We praise you for his death and his resurrection. We praise you for his ascension and his reigning now in glory. And we praise you for the glory that we know stands before us. Lord, shine that glory in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen.